Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. I would like to take a brief moment to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for sponsoring today's show. With the broad accessibility of the internet and food allergy information 24-7, it can get tricky to decipher the difference between a food allergy myth, good information, or misinformation. Dr. Dave Stuckus helps us break down how to identify potential myths, what to do to confirm good or bad information, and where to find medically vetted information and resources. Welcome back, Dr. Dave, to Facts Roundtable Podcast. You are absolutely a fan favorite who always helps us look at information more productively. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you. We appreciate it. So now, before we get too deep into our conversation today, can you share your background with our listeners who might not have listened to you before with us, and then why you are casually dubbed the guru of food allergy mythbusting? I have no idea who has dubbed me the guru of food allergy mythbusting, but uh, I'm it's it's I'm honored by that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a I'm a pediatric allergist and immunologist, which means that after I did my my training uh, to become a pediatrician, I spent a couple of extra years in fellowship for allergy immunology, and I work at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I've been here for oh my gosh, twelve years, and uh, now I spend all of my time running our food allergy treatment center, which we opened about two and a half years ago. So I am truly focused on just pediatric food allergy which I love. Uh, we love helping families clarify the diagnosis, work through aspects in regards to management, address the psychosocial concerns. We do tons of food challenges, oral immunotherapy. We have psychologists on staff, clinical research, things like that. And in my spare time, uh, I do a lot of work with professional and advocacy organizations. I participate in research and quality improvement. And uh, I joined social media as a medical professional, oh my gosh, a decade ago, uh, where I started off on, on Twitter, which is now X, of course, and then Instagram. And I decided that I wanted to try to put good evidence-based information out into the world because there's so much misinformation out there. And uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, It keeps me busy, sometimes busier than I I want to be, but it's been very rewarding. Well, okay. So the guru of food allergy myths busting came from a group of us who have been following you for years, and we do look for you to bust the myths. I mean, you really have this great reputation, and so we appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. It's There's so much misinformation out there, and it's impossible for me or anybody to keep up with it all. But uh, I'm I'm happy to sort of be on the, hopefully, the, the right side. <laughs> You're definitely on the right side. So now diving into our myth versus facts conversation, let's explore what is a myth, and then how can the average person determine if they're even hearing one? So it would be great if you can give us an example of like a popular myth that you often hear or see online, and then how can someone tell 
if it's smelling fishy, I mean, how can they kind of figure out like, hmm, I need to question this? Yeah, this isn't always very easy to do. Uh, so I think first rule of thumb is if somebody is selling something, whether it's a product, a test, a service, anything, and that is the source of the information that they're providing, that is called marketing. Um, so they are trying to sell you something and, and just recognizing that there's a huge conflict of interest there because they are basically benefiting from you buying into what they're selling. Uh, so look for that. Uh, if you can vet your sources and you know, looking at professional or advocacy organizations or try to find more than one source that sort of is verifying it. And then, you know, it, it's it's not number of followers that equals expertise, which is often what gets confused for these days. And there's a lot of influencers out there, which it's it's a kind of a slippery slope because to become an influencer, that means that you have to, you know, do extreme things to get a lot of views and clicks, uh, which then garners attention. And then once you become an influencer, you have to continue to do that. Otherwise you lose your status. So they're doing more and more sort of, you know, on the end of the spectrum things, whether it's, you know, tug at the emotional heartstrings or talk about extremes of whatever it may be to get people's attention. So just kind of be aware of that. As far as some of my favorite myths, there are many. I think one that always circulates that tends to get a lot of attention is this myth that, you know, eating um, honey can treat environmental allergies, which is a complete myth. And it's you know pretty much made up to sell honey, often local organic honey. Uh, and here's the gist of it. The pollen that honeybees collect to make the honey comes from flowering plants that don't release their pollen into the air. That's not the cause of what causes allergic rhinitis, uh, which is actually pollen from trees and grasses and weeds and ragweed. And to make it super easy, if somebody with environmental allergies ate a mouthful of the pollen that caused their allergies, they wouldn't experience relief of their symptoms. They would actually have an allergic reaction inside their mouth. Uh, so <laughs> that's just one kind of common example that, that I hear on a regular basis. So now I have a question about pay to play. I've seen people share that they've done some research and here's their research. But I do know in terms of these journals, there's a pay to play and then there's peer reviewed. So if you don't mind discussing what is the difference to help someone understand that, because again, I've seen someone post some very questionable things, but it's posted as a paper that's done through a journal that is not peer-reviewed. That's a great question and a great point. So there's a few levels to this. So first and foremost, just because something is published does not mean that it was actually peer-reviewed. There are a lot of what we call sort of predatory journals that people pay. They pay $3,000 to publish their quote-unquote research, and it doesn't get reviewed by their peers. Whereas if you have a legitimate academic journal, they actually send manuscripts out. You know, it's a blinded process where people critique it. And, you know, I review articles all the time, and I offer feedback regarding, you know, the methodology that they, that they use, the limitations, how to make some edits to you know make it you know more readable and things like that. So those are very important distinctions, which isn't always easy to tell. And these days, you can pretty much find you know published research to support any opinion or viewpoint, but that doesn't make it valid. Uh, so you still have to go through and just because something is published, like what's the sample size, what's the methodology that was used. The common example would be um, people looking at either retrospective data or they go back over large databases and they look for associations of two different things and they find that you know a happens with with increased frequency in people who also have B, and then that gets um, misconstrued as A causing B. So no, you ha and if you want to say that one thing causes another, you have to do a randomized controlled trial and, and do it prospectively and, and monitor people over time and see if one, one group is, is exposed to one thing, develops certain symptoms or relief or things like that. So there's a whole lot that goes into this, but more than ever, we all have to be savvy in regards to what qualifies as research, number one, uh, and number two was, is it actually good research? Because there's a lot of, you know, bad studies that get published. And what is an easy way for like a listener to find peer-reviewed journals? Like if you don't mind just sharing a couple of the names. 
Well, I mean, with our specialty, um, there are several to choose from, you know, from the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma Immunology. There's the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. They also have a sister journal, the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. I'm associate editor for the, the American College of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology's journal called Annals of Allergy, Asthma Immunology. Um, so it starts with, you know, if you do like a search on PubMed or even Google Scholar, that's a good way to kind of look through it. But it's not always easy to find. So if you're if you're truly questioning whether or not it's legit is you, know, you have to go to the source uh, and some of these you know, pay-to-play journals uh, it's you know it you can kind of see either they're not listed in PubMed so they don't get citations that way or it's right there on their website about you know their process for submitting manuscripts that's how I personally discovered the pay-to-play as I went to the website you oh, know what I mean yeah. like I saw these prices and I thought okay that seems really bizarre yeah anything legitimate shouldn't charge you to publish you know journals want really good research in their journals because they want people to read it and they want to garner citations and uh, if if the research is legitimate they shouldn't have to pay to publish it very, very true. So now looking like at social media and the internet, because it's just growing and it's stronger and stronger, and people are sharing reels now and TikToks and they're posting, you know, 24 seven. Do you think the number of myths is now increasing because we're going so 24 seven? But then on that same note, do you think you're seeing more information coming out as well? Like, you know, Fact has a very strong social media account, you know, the College Academy, they have social media now. So kind of what are your thoughts on what's the landscape right now? Yeah, it's everything is amplified. Uh, you know, um, with social media, people lack the time to digest the information because we're just bombarded nonstop by, you know, different snippets and factoids. So a lot of it lacks proper context and perspective. And it's really easy for some of the, the more emotional types of stories to, you know, get amplified and shared. You know, for instance, when it comes to food allergy, the reality is for the vast majority of people with food allergy, they go about their daily lives with minimal disruption and they don't experience any reactions. That's really boring. Uh, nobody's going to run a story of how 10 million children with peanut allergy went to school today without having a reaction. Um, but when we do have these very rare, scary, tragic fatalities, those stories get shared wide and far. Uh, and oftentimes they lack the details. Like we, we often don't even know what happened. Uh, and then people, you know, often make, you know, assumptions and they speculate and it just gets, you know, it, it's, it's terrible. And that just leads to fear. Um, so if you're reading something and it generates a strong emotional response, pay attention to that because that, that's the first clue that maybe this is a fear-based message that is is designed to gain my attention and, and share and click and things like that. So think twice before you actually believe anything that you read. And that's a good point too. When our emotions shoot right up, that should be a little red flag. Like, okay, they've shot up. Now what's going on? You know, and also too, maybe that's also triggering that if our emotions shoot up, maybe we do need a conversation with our doctor. Maybe this is showing us where some of our fears lay and we need to work with a professional. Yeah, you know, I had this conversation three times this morning. I was treating patients at our food allergy center and parents brought up, I read this online. Does this pertain to my child? That is the perfect example of how I want to be a resource. And that's what I encourage everybody else to do. Because more often than not, especially with food allergy, it is so individualized these days. You can take a hundred people with peanut allergy and each of them differs in regards to the severity of reaction, their eliciting dose, uh, the impact it has on their lives and comorbid conditions. And if you read somebody's story and just because you hear that they have the same allergy you do, their whole life may not pertain to yours whatsoever. So always, always take it back to your own personal doctor and or allergist and discuss any concerns that you have, because it may just be a whole lot of anxiety for no reason at all. 
That is very excellent advice. So now what are your thoughts about social media posts that focus on how to respond to an allergic reaction? Is this really considered giving medical advice? And what are your thoughts? Because I've seen all sorts of posts where you've got someone on TikTok showing how to use epinephrine, how to respond, but they're mentioning all sorts of other things that they do. I've seen people post their child's reaction online, and then people are chiming in with what to do with this. Like, what advice do you have for listeners to, if they see these, what should they do? How should they approach it? I cannot emphasize this next statement enough for all of your wonderful listeners. All of the comments that you see in regards to any food allergy post are incorrect. Almost all of them are incorrect. A lot of it is just outdated information uh, that may have been believed at one point, but you know is no longer true or has been proven to be false, or it's people's you know um, misinformed opinions. Uh, so please ignore the. Com- I cringe when I read these comments. People don't know what they're talking about, but they still uh, you know believe that they have a level of expertise that they don't have. So really, uh, you know, proceed with caution. As far as all those posts out there, you know, nobody should be giving anybody individualized medical advice. So if you want. Want to you know perform magic? So here's a magic trick for everybody: go on social media and uh, you know ask a medical question. Uh, what should I do for my child who has X, Y, or Z? And you will magically you know create a whole bunch of really bad information because uh, <laughs> people don't hesitate; they have no expertise at all, and they're going to comment and they're going to say, "You should do this. You should do that. I did this. My friend's cousin's brother did this." It's awful. Always go back to your own personal doctor or allergist, especially if you read something that you know contradicts what they advised you to do. Now there is good information out there as well, but it's really hard to tell the good from the bad these days. And I, I guess we have to talk about artificial intelligence you know, for every conversation like this. So AI is changing the landscape. And now we're seeing in real time these you know, deep fake videos of celebrities and influencers and politicians you know, being uh, shown to say certain things or, or give certain advice that they actually never did in real life. Uh, so all of us need to increase how savvy we are in navigating the online world and make sure we vet everything before we believe it to be true. Exactly. I mean, obviously, I'm biased with fact, but also just, you know, listeners, turn to national organizations that you know have medical advisory boards. You know, fact specifically, everything we post goes through our medical advisory board. It's just really important to make sure that your resources do have that medical element because these lovely doctors like Dr. Stukas, they keep us out of trouble. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. So all the professional advocacy organizations, they all have these medical advisory boards and that's that's our job. And, you know, I, I've served in this capacity for several organizations and it's it's been a great experience for me because I actually can influence, you know, what the organization puts out because sometimes they'll come to us as a group and they'll say, oh, this is a really important story and these are the comments we want to have. And as physicians, we say, whoa, we need to pump the brakes on that because this is actually, you know, incorrect and this could scare people and let, let's put this spin on it and make sure people understand the perspective and things like that. That's why we need you and appreciate you. (sighs) So now there's one conversation that's been going around in the community for a little bit is that, you know, teens, college kids, high school kids, middle middle school age kids all turn to social media, right, to get their information. So how does a parent guide their child? Like any thoughts on what to do when you know your kids jumping onto TikTok and they're watching these other kids give themselves epinephrine? Like as a parent and a caregiver, what do you suggest we do to manage this or to address this? 
Well, I think we need to model good behavior. I think we need to learn ourselves how to you know, spot good information and bad information. Uh, we need to have the conversation with our teenagers and ask them what kinds of information they're seeing online. Uh, sh- you know, sh- Scroll through with them and see what they're looking at. Ask them how they feel about it. Ask them if they believe that. Um, it's interesting. So our son is going to turn 14 soon. And I talked to him about the, the YouTube videos. And he says, oh, yeah, but that's all fake. And then I ask him, well, how do you know? Uh, and he's pretty savvy. And I think most of you know teenagers are these days. But you have to have that conversation. It's not a bad thing. It's the world that we live in. But at the same time, we also have to model it. So, you know, if we're sitting side by side and not having a conversation, we're both endlessly scrolling through our phones, not conversing with one another, you know, that's not going to be a a very productive way to help them learn how to navigate things. This is just amazing advice. Thank you. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else you want our listeners to hear from you as the guru, right? I don't know, unofficial (laughs) guru of myth busting. No, and thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. No, in all in all seriousness, and I think I, I hope people don't get tired of me saying this, because uh, I've I've taken a very deep dive into trying to understand how um, social media is influencing all of us as human beings. Our brains were not wired to uh, interact in this manner. Uh, and the more I learn about it and the algorithms and the way that it actually shapes the information we receive, it, it scares me more and more. So I encourage everybody to to really learn more about our own habits and how how we engage with our devices uh, and take breaks. The world is not going to end, uh, especially you know at the time of this recording. There's some pretty horrific things going on in our world, and it, it, it can be really sad. So notice these things in yourself. If you're scrolling through, if you're reading stories that scare you, if you're reading stories that generate fear, whether it's regarding food allergy or anything else, recognize that and put your phone down. Take a break. Uh, we really all need to focus on our, our mental health and wellness these days, and social media has, has a role to play in our lives, but it can also negatively impact us as well. Absolutely stunning words to end by. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Dave. Again, we appreciate you so much and we look forward to having you back again on Facts Roundtable podcast. Well, that would be great. Thanks for having me. Again, we want to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for sponsoring this week's Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.